It's hard, it's a long road. So you have to have that passion and belief. So it's really worth interrogating that idea, roughing it up a bit, molding it, shaping it, so that when you go to the table, you know it inside out and you believe in it. Welcome to the 100th episode of Startup West, the podcast about West Australian startup founders who have been there and done it or are right here and doing it. My name is Chris Tan. And my name's Danelle Cross. And before we start, I would like to acknowledge that we are recording this podcast in the land of Wajak people of the Noongar Nation, and we pay our respects to elders past, present and emerging. I'd also like to thank our sponsors. Startup West is produced by Startup News and sponsored by the City of Perth, RSM, Space Cubed, Techon and Curtin University. In this, our 100th episode, we have a very special treat. We speak with Professor Fiona Wood, who invented spray-on skin resell, made famous after the Bali bombings, and for which she was made Australian of the Year in 2005. Welcome to Startup West, Fiona. Uh, you became famous for your spray-on skin innovation. Can you tell us about your work and how it's been going? Oh, well, thank you very much for being interested. And certainly this work for me started so long ago, before you were born probably. Uh, <laughs> I'm a plastic and reconstructive surgeon and I've spent a lot of my life, in fact, probably almost my professional life, treating patients who have a burn injury and loss of skin, a major loss of skin integrity. And when I was a youngster in the 1980s, uh, looking at uh, patients who were recovering from these burn injuries, I was shocked, to be perfectly honest. I thought, my goodness, is that as good as we can do? Mm. And so we've got to be able to do better. And so that set me off on a journey that is still ongoing today. It includes the whole spray-on-skin sort of story, mm. uh, but also our future work where the spray-on-skin cells is uh, basically a kit that we, Marie Stone and myself developed and commercialized, but mm. that takes skin from a non-injured area and we we process it uh, with enzy enzymes and mechanical processing. So we want to take the butter out of a bread and butter sandwich. Right. <laughs> and the butter are the cells, the cells that will regenerate your skin. Mm. And so that's what we're doing. We're just de-buttering the sandwich. And so, and then those cells we will spray on. But how can we do that better? And mm. so at the moment, we're way into a research program looking at various ways of 3D printing. So mm. can we print the framework and the cells at the same time to really push this further forward so that we can get a better quality uh, restoration of skin? And then can we add the nerves and the hair follicles and the sweat glands? So, you know, I've got plenty to do still. Amazing, amazing, amazing. And you make it sound so simple, debuttering <laughs> the, the sandwich. But can you talk us through a bit of that, the early stages of that commercialization process? So how did it, it start from being, you know, you've identified how do we do better mm -hmm. here to, to, to sort of commercializing that? So the, the how do we do better mm. was a real itch in my brain when I was a youngster, as mm. I say. And then I came here to Western Australia and I had to finish my training in plastic surgery. Mm -hmm. uh, but by January of 1991, I was the director of the burn service of Western Australia. Mm. I'll be always, always upfront and honest, I was the only applicant for that job. So the alternative would have been very awkward. <laughs> uh, and But that put me in a position to really explore the boundaries mm. of knowledge. It put me in a position where I could uh, make decisions uh, and, and really chase the funding and everything mm. to start to work out how we could take what then was new technology, yes. growing mm. skin cells into sheets of uh, 
of skin, how we could take that technology and make it work. And so we started uh, with this uh, technology that came out of um, MIT and uh, first used in the early 80s in Boston Brigham and Women's Hospital. Mm. And we started uh, with the team in Melbourne who had gone to uh, the US to learn how to grow skin. Mm. And then with Mar I met Marie in the basement of uh, Royal Perth Hospital mm. where we were processing the skin cell sheets for the day. So we'd have to get them out of the tissue culture flasks into onto a dressing so that then we could put them on the person. And that was, to say that was labor intensive would be an understatement anyway, right. uh, sort of working from about three and four in the morning to get ready for the operating theater to start at 8.30. Wow. And so then we figured, oh, this, we could do this, we could do that, we could do the other. And so what we needed was uh, our own laboratory. Mm. And Telethon uh, funding uh, was came through in uh, 1993, February mm. 1993. Mm. And so Marie and I, Marie was uh, in the bone marrow laboratory mm. uh, as a medical scientist there, but she came over with me to f uh, the children's hospital where we converted an old store cupboard well, it was quite a large cupboard, really, <laughs> and, into a laboratory. And we started uh, working out, well, how can we do this better? How better. can we do it differently? Mm. And by 1994, 95, we were spraying skin cells on. Mm, amazing. Oh, wow. And by the end of the 1990s, we realized we were just head down, bum up, beavering away here. And then we realized when we went to a meeting in Geneva, I think it was 98 or 99, the world expert uh, gave a talk on 29 patients. And I sat there and I looked at Maria and she looked at me and I thought, oh, we had done over 300. Oh, wow. And we thought, oh, this is going to be exercise <laughs> in politics, if nothing else. Uh, and, uh, and so then when we came back, we realized that we we had pushed those boundaries. Yes. Mm. We had developed something that was novel. And so then we packaged that uh, novel solution into what became the resell kit, which is a point of care medical device. Mm. I mean, I still look at it. We use it every day. Uh, and it's, uh, I mean, it's got FDA approval and it's been uh, using increasingly over, since 2018 in the US and all. But only a couple of weeks week ago, uh, the approval came through from in the US from FDA to change the color of skin to uh, introduce pigment to use yes, it for that. Yes. And so, you know, this is a, a story that's still evolving. And I look at it and I think, goodness gracious, how did Marie and I ever do that? How did a young scientist and a young surgeon actually, you know, think about it, build it? and drive it to the finish line. And I think it was because we knew we didn't know we couldn't. Yes. Yeah. And I yes. think that was the, the thing. And certainly we came across a fair number of roadblocks, but we just kept going. And yeah. it's like, okay, if you don't want to play this, no, no drama, we'll go find someone else, you know? Because it took a lot of effort. Yes. Uh, and we, we needed to look at plastic molding, enzyme development, you know, processing in, in the kit. How do you then get the kit sterile packaged to the bedside? These mm. are all skills that are outside of the, you know, <laughs> the surgical science remit. And uh, we just kept our head down and, and found people that mm. were willing to help. Mm. Yeah. And, you know, like I remember going into uh, Rock, Rockaby Road, behind Rock, Rockaby Road, there's a, a, a workshop where they build novel syringe drivers. So you've got syringes that need to be uh, pumped through at certain rates for certain mm -hmm. dosages. Yeah. And there is a place there that they, they're actually building these things. So they understand electronics and all, mm. right? Oh, wow. yeah. And so we kind of knock on the door and say, oh, can you help us? 
And like, so oh, did you yeah. did you just literally knock on the door? Yeah, yeah. Of, yeah. It was before internet and all. Yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah. yeah. We're just like, oh, have you heard about these guys? Oh no, let's well, can we come? Can we come and see what you're doing? Can we have coffee? Can we show you what we're doing? You know, so Welshpool did the plastic molding and you know, Rockaby Road guys did the the electronics for us. And mm. then CSL did the enzyme processing for us. And we had to do an awful lot, of course, uh, around all this and just, right, it was a scale-up. We needed yes. clearly help mm. in the scale-up yes. because there's one thing doing it in the laboratory mm. with small volumes. There's another saying, well, we've going, we're going to, we need to dispatch 100 kits uh, to Japan this week or so whatever how, it may yeah. be. You Can know? you tell us a bit more about that? Mm. How did you manage that stage? Well, uh, this was probably the late 90s, early 2000s, mm. and, and we had to get it from that, well, we've got a medical device now, we've got a prototype, uh, and we've done all the validations and the toxicologies and the, all those things, and we've been re- guided really strongly by the TGAP folks. And so, right, now that we need it sterilised, packaged, Okay, compliant packaging, of course, with right kind of labeling. Mm. Uh, and we looked around the world, and at that point, there was only one place, Ventrex in California, mm. who could assemble the kit, sterilize it, and package it for dispatch. I mean, now there's many, many places, sure. you know, but yeah. in those days, when you've got electronics and uh, biologic with enzyme and you needed it sterile for a sterile mm. field because it's a point of care, and so we take it into the operating room in the sterile field. And so all these things came together with Ventrex in California and uh, Marie was a terrier finding these people, you know, (laughs) and of course flying around and and sort of saying, well, this is what we're Mm. doing, Mm. can you help us? And so we uh, then signed uh, the the agreements around that uh, around 2002, Mm. which caused us a little bit of an interesting problem because people felt that, that we just did this as the Bali bomb kind of situation mm. went off. Mm. And we'd been spraying skin cells on yes. since 1994. Yeah. Mm. And so it wasn't new for us. And it wasn't like we were experimenting. Mm. It was actually, no, it's just this confluence of, of events was going on mm. and we were still pushing forward. Because, of course, in order to do so, we had to have the structural entities to do this Absolutely. as well. And so we set up a not-for-profit uh, research foundation. Mm. We negotiated with the hospital and the university to assign our intellectual property to the not-for-profit foundation. And uh, in order for that to happen, we said we made agreements that uh, we would. We also established a company. Mm-hmm. It was called Clinical Cell Culture, C3. And so we had these three things going on. So we had the IP move to the, uh, the not-for-profit foundation, and the not-for-profit foundation had an agreement with the a company that we'd established such that the company was responsible for managing the IP in return for uh, royalties at, mm. at the point when it becomes such. <laughs> yeah, very optimistic at that time. <laughs> anyway, and so there was an agreement through uh, between C3 and the then Macomb Foundation, and there was an agreement with health mm. such that the technology would be provided to uh, WA Health at not-for-profit level uh, for the life of the patent. So that would take me through to well and truly post-retirement. And so there were, it took out the conflict of interest. Mm. One, we designed our intellectual property uh, to the foundation anyway. And two, we weren't ever making f- 
profit from the use of the technology in our patients in WA. Mm. And, and that was the sort of quick pro quo. And so now uh, the uh, kits approved in FDA, et cetera, in 2018, then we do have significant royalties coming through to the foundation, which means we can continue our research. And you know, that was the point for us, for Marie and myself, it was establishing the availability of this technology yeah. across the world and supporting our research going forward because if you know anything about research <laughs> and innovation for that matter <laughs> what is the biggest barrier funding i yeah. feel like i should break into an abba song at that point <laughs> <laughs> but your foresight fiona in in structuring that you know how how did you were you surrounded by terrific people or did you, you know, was it was it purely with that passion to continue your research and continue the impact? Well, the main, the, mainly we had, it was Marie and I, mm-hmm. yeah, mm-hmm. and we go, we didn't know we couldn't. Yes. Nobody told us we couldn't. Yes. Mm-hmm. And we had great facilitation uh, in the administration mm-hmm. uh, at the hospital mm-hmm. that really went into bat uh, and with and the Crown Law and everything. So, uh, but we were very much... Uh, we established the whole system mm. because we worked out that's the that for us seemed the best way to go. Mm. It did almost fall over. We, I mean, it wasn't all sunshine and roses. Never and is. So, no, no, <laughs> never is. I bear the scars. And so then, of course, because it was all often mostly nearly fell over, obviously, around money. Mm. Uh, and so because we didn't go straight to the resale kit, we went through a journey of providing uh, a, a laboratory that provided cells, and that yeah. was too costly, too too challenging mm. because the time frame, the delays, and uh, and, the, and just the sheer cost of running a top level GMP laboratory is yeah. really prohibitive in an everyday use te- technology. Mm. So that's why I went to point of care bedside stuff. But when we almost came to grief, we went along the St George's Terrace and asked a number of uh, folks to help us. And they go, uh, fold, uh, fold it and start again. <laughs> and by then people were working for us and, you know, we, we created mm. this, mm. you know, what we thought was really good entity, a series <laughs> of entities. And eventually we go, oh, no, thanks. And we went and we saw, went into Solomon Brothers. There was, uh, Paul Fletcher was a lawyer working there. And he said, you know, the sensible thing is to still start again. And we go, and he looks and he says, you guys aren't going to do that, are you? And we go, no, <laughs> we've just been all the way along this terrace. No. Uh, and he goes, oh, I always like to challenge. And he remains a very good friend to this day, a solid individual that helped us out of, his, uh, of, uh, of a situation. And, of course, we had people that helped us, were, you know, getting forwards with the funding, mm-hmm. like angel investors, mm-hmm. mainly Luke Longley, mm-hmm. and then uh, people – we did backdoor listing and 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 into a mining shelf. Mm. Yeah, now you think like why? But it was the best solution at the time, at the yeah, time and mm. and people were there to support us doing that so that mm. we could keep going. And you know, so as we and there's been lots of capital raisings along the way. Uh, and as it's going into the future, I haven't been on the board now for quite some time because mm-hmm. it's. I've always said when I was uh, acting CEO, I was acting because I sure because <laughs> I sure didn't have the, have the uh, mindset for it. And all yeah. yeah. I want, to, I want, I'm a surgeon and a scientist. Yeah, I'm not a business person in my head, but a lot. Of, but I, I think you know, being, you know reverting to sort of integrity common sense making 
you know, looking at the landscape and thinking, what feels right here? Exactly. You know? And a lot of the time when you're doing things that are completely novel, you've just got to just kind of always go zen and go like, Maria, go, like, does this feel right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, let's get the crystals out. <laughs> yeah. And so, so that, I guess, is, oh, you know, a significant part of my life in a few breaths. <laughs> That's amazing. Actually, I do want to ask um, whether it was back then or the journey through to um, sort of where it was or where it is sort of now, but like advisors, mentors, and um, like did you develop a board for the – Yeah. yeah. The well, the first board we built mm. – um, we developed, I guess, was the Macomb Foundation. Mm-hmm. And people uh, uh, with us that, you know, we knew mm. uh, or people who knew uh, people. And, uh, you know, so it was kind of a bit organic. Mm. Uh, and uh, and it was really, I think, uh, understanding people. We surround ourselves with people who know more than us and understood the space. Mm. Mm. So the first board was the Macomb Foundation Board, which is now morphed to the Fiona Wood Foundation Board. And so that's a, a, a very vibrant uh, entity that goes, well, hopefully will be sustainable into the future beyond, beyond my time. And we have a great uh, team there. Uh, and then we built the clinical cell culture, so we needed a board there. And then, of course, we've had a series of CEOs. And when it merged with, oh, it merged with a respiratory company, and then it became a Vita Medical. Then we've had a series of CEOs and boards, and that board. I mean, some of those guys have, have really stood the test of time and have stuck at it, mm-hmm. you know, along the of, over the years. Uh, and so, so it was always understanding that there's a lot of skill sets that you need and one brain can't do it all and so mm. you need lots of other people I say you know I I feel a bit remiss saying that I look at the resale kit and think god how did Marie and I do that but I mean the physical kit you know the, the actual the science and the technology mm. that was where our bag was right uh, putting that kit in the operating theater at Cornell in New York now that's a whole different ball game, mm. and we we absolutely recognised that we needed uh, help from a lot of different skill sets to do that, and it was a long and hard road. I mean, the, the Avita Medical team are doing extremely well right now, uh, and it's been there's a few of the, those guys that bear the scars with me, that, <laughs> that mm. we share that have been through the ups and downs over the decades, really, because when you're doing something that's so different. It is hard to mm. uh, to overcome the inertia of cu- of the current practice and and mm. also to break down the barriers, uh, particularly in health. I think there's a lot mm-hmm. of quite rightly there's a, a fair bit of inertia because you know you've got to make sure it's safe and mm. reliable and all those things. Mm. So yeah, uh, the boards. Uh, I've met a lot of people over the years mm-hmm. that have uh, been incredibly influential, but. I came back to the most significant mentor I've ever had was Harold McComb. He's a plastic and reconstructive mm. surgeon here mm. in Western Australia until he, unfortunately he died, not actually that long ago, but he was an exquisite technician mm. and really thoughtful surgeon. And he taught me you can always learn something from today to make tomorrow better. And it doesn't have to be big. It can be big or small. But that incremental gains, just never, never, never let the sun set without learning something. 
Oh, beautiful. Yeah, so powerful, that. Fiona. Mm. So you, you spoke about resale and the continual evolution even now with the, the change in the, the pigmentation of the skin, et cetera. Mm. So the next three to five years, and you're still as passionate, clearly mm. as passionate and, mm. you know, driven as ever, you and your, you know, the broader team. Can you tell us what you're seeing into the future, into the next three and five years? Well, I think we're, we're really looking at it's – I find it easier to explain if I think about patients if, mm. and certain mm-hmm. tell, and sort of stories. Uh, in 2017, in April, we had uh, we're treating a young four-year-old who had a really severe and deep burn uh, over well, just almost 50 percent uh, mm. body surface area down to the muscle, and we spent uh, you know, many hours removing all the burn and replacing the burn with a a dermal scaffold. Now, your skin's in two layers. The epidermis is the waterproof layer, keeps you waterproof and keeps you alive. But the dermis is the tough inner inner layer Mm. that gives you the quality, yeah, the robustness so that you don't sort of split open all the time. And so the dermis, uh, dermal scaffolds we've placed, uh, and then we leave for three weeks until the the, burn Cells from the base of the wound of the, the body grow in and create its tissue-guided regeneration and create wow. the deeper aspects of the skin. Now, then three weeks later, we take off an outer silicon layer like that's a pseudo-dressing and mm-hmm. we put the cells on and the skin grafts so we repair the epidermis. And we're sitting there and I think, why don't we spray the dermis on? Mm. And I thought, oh, I'm a slow learner. We've been spraying <laughs> cells on for decades. Why don't we spray the framework on? Mm. So that's when we started the program of 3D printing. Mm. And so in the next uh, three to five years, I've, uh, there are 3D printing groups around the world that we kind of, some we connect with, some we mm-hmm. collaborate with, some some we just know. <laughs> and and so some build, use 3D 3D printers to build skin in the lab mm-hmm. for secondary transfer to the body. But our focus is, is actually at the bedside. I've always been focused on mm. point of care, reducing the time to healing, reducing pain, reducing the risk of infection, reducing that suffering. Mm. And so we're looking at these 3D printing sy- systems. But So there's the framework and there's the cells that give us the structure, the toughness mm. and the waterproof layer. But what about the cells for hair? sweat glands what about the nerve integration Mm. into that and what about the scar so there's lots to do uh, but we're building and we're we the team here in WA are right at that forefront uh, with the the guys the teams around the world not many of them Mm. working in this space and we collaborate with University of Wollongong uh, Queensland universities as well as uh, internationally on trying to drive this forward And a shout out to the Startup West podcast sponsors. The Startup West podcast is produced by Startup News and is made possible by the support from Space Cubed, Curtin University, RSM, the City of Perth and TechOn. Fiona, can we take you back through your career? From your school days, uh, you are born in the north of England? Mm Mm-hmm, yes. What were some of your favourite subjects at school? Um, And I guess, did you show sort of this entrepreneurial spirit back in those days? I'm not sure that was a word back in those days. I'm so old. But, but I think it's interesting because I was a card-carrying nerd all the way through. You know, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a maths and science kid. You know, I'm a Y kind of kid and I've turned into a Y kind of adult and a Y kind of old person. And so, you know, 
I and I think I was really fortunate. I, I was sporty as well, you know. So I was a nerd with with a sporty kind of bent. Uh, especially, I loved running fast, but uh, unfortunately, not quite fast enough to win <laughs> as much as I would have liked. But anyway, uh, and so I was brought up in an environment that, and with like my mum, mum and dad, and we're really focused on education. Mm. Education to give it will give you the opportunity. Such that when you get up in the morning, you can choose something such you enjoy what you do. Mm. And I think I'm so lucky. So get up in the morning and enjoy what you do is a real privilege. And it's education-based, you know, because without that education, I would have not been in this situation. Mm. And so that was dad's mantra. And and the other thing was you've got to, if you can do anything, mm. anything in this world, mm. you've just got to work hard enough. And so that work ethic and I think you know I, I could have done I, I could have ended up in lots of different places I guess and down lots of different rabbit holes but what would I have brought to the table a capacity to work out yeah mm. yeah and and I think that it was really defining yeah mm. and I think sport was good for me because it taught me how to how to win and how to lose more specifically mm. uh, but also with good grace uh, and yeah, but also how to plan uh, and how to uh, train and, and work out how to get better at things mm. in a way that we, that isn't sheep stations. Or, you know that you could actually, even as a kid, you know that if you practice something, you get better. Well, that's yeah. a fundamental life lesson. Yeah, <laughs> Absolutely. You know, it's like whoa, what a surprise! Absolutely. You know? And yeah. you know, the harder you work, my dad used to say, the luckier, luckier you get. get. Absolutely. Yeah. You know, it's like really. <laughs> Absolutely. And, uh, so, so that's my the starting point. My life did change radically when I was 13 because my mum got a job at a Quaker school, a school run by the Society of Friends, which meant I wouldn't have to leave school at the end of year 10. I could go to the end of year 12. Mm. And that's specifically why she got that job at that school uh, against all odds. Mm. Uh, and uh, I went there. Uh, and it was life changing in many ways. Mm. I, to, for a thirteen-year-old to find themselves in a, a Quaker environment, I'm not a religious person, but mm. if I was, I would be Quaker. Uh, the school motto was "Non sibi sed omnibus," not for oneself but for others. Mm. There, you know, everybody was equal. There was, you know, there was a, an, a compassion and an empathy in the environment that I, I think was formative in. Uh, for me at that time, you know, so when it came to the end and I was going to do maths and physics, it was put to me that possibly medicine was a better use of my time. Mm. Uh, and uh, I was coerced and mm. uh, I made that decision with very little insight, but it was a decision to, you know, to do medicine and to get into medicine mm. was a decision that I, I, I can't imagine now ever doing anything else yeah, you know sure. i mean it's just defined me uh, mm. being a doctor as and being in a position that my education and training can and can support and help people whose lives have changed in an instant mm. for the worse is an extraordinary privilege that i still marvel at you know it's like amazing and so I think it's my duty and my responsibility my and my privilege to then mm. think, well, okay, how do we do better tomorrow? How do we harness the technology out there, harness the engineering, the science to bring it to bear on the subject of choice for me is burn injury and skin restoration. 
such that we can really reduce that suffering in, in, in people who are unfortunate. You know? so, so I think that's really started, that whole seed was sown when I walked across the road when I was 13 years old and my mum grabbed me by the shoulders and said, you grasp the nettle with both hands, this is an extraordinary opportunity, never let go. And yeah, that was it. It was it changed changed my whole life. Powerful, yes. amazing, very much so. You studied. Where did you study medicine? St Thomas's Hospital, which uh, is right next to the Houses of Parliament mm-hmm. uh, in London. Mm-hmm. I arrived there in uh, in 1975, mm. and uh, the so the term starts in October, like early October. And uh, I always remember the first November the fifth is bonfire night, and which is these days very inappropriate. Mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, some of the older medical students had uh, coerced money out of us all and they got lots of fire rockets and went on to the top of the new St. Thomas's Hospital building that had just been built and fired all the fire rockets to the House of Parliament, which went down poorly, <laughs> I'd have to say. <laughs> but we all thought it was uh, jolly good hilarious. fun. Yeah, yeah. And hilarious. Hilarious <laughs> as we were running away. Uh, um. so, so, so being in med school in the 1970s was uh, fantastic. Mm. It was a great time. Mm. Mm. And then where was your first placement post-university? Well, for, I, I my first house job, we mm. were uh, interns in this country. We were house House housemen, housewomen, mm-hmm. or house mm-hmm. dogs, whichever, <laughs> whichever you choose. Uh, so my first house job was St Thomas's. Mm. My second house job was in Yorkshire because mm. I went home for, and mm. uh, had a bit of respite for uh, six months mm. before then going to Great Ormond Street uh, Hospital for Sick Children. Mm-hmm. Uh, that was my first job in my second year out of medical school, and I was a senior house officer in plastic surgery mm-hmm. in children, and I, I I was in my space. Yeah, it wow. was. I was. It was again extraordinary. Mm. I. I mean, med school was, I say, fantastic because it was good fun. But it was fantastic for me because I connected with plastic surgeons who were mm-hmm. doing research, mm-hmm. and I knew I needed to, a CV that would uh, be a bit different to get me a job. Mm because uh, girls don't do surgery, mm. uh, apparently. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so so then going from there to Great Ormond Street, it was just eye-opening, you know, the opportunities and the possibilities of rebuilding uh, these children. And uh, then, uh, but Burns had already bitten me. Uh, and so then I went to East Grinstead, which is the home of the guinea pig club, in uh, south of England. What, what's the guinea pig club? Oh, the <laughs> guinea pig club. Oh, sorry. Do sorry, tell. I, I'm so, Do so, tell. Right, the guinea pig club is a self-named right. by a, a Second World War Air Force personnel who were gathered together by Sir Archibald McIndoe, the plastic surgeon, actually for Kiwi, and he collected all these folks together and that had survived burn injuries mm. and he treated them at East Grinstead, the Queen Victoria Hospital East Grinstead, and rebuilt them. Wow. And they were, uh, you know, they're obviously English and all, but all allied forces, yeah. wow. uh, airmen. And it, you know, and things started at that point that you know saltwater baths because uh, people mm. who fell in the ocean did better than those who wow. uh, didn't in the war. So the cold, uh, the exploring the cold, exploring saltwater, exploring yeah. antimicrobial uh, sort of treatments, rebuilding, and so uh, the sort of reconstructive surgery started as well. And 
there's some great photographs in the in the doctor's mess at East Grinstead. Like there's a whole football team where every one of the the guys, the patients, have got their hands sewn into their groin, which you may think is terrible, but actually it was to facilitate new skin growing mm. from the groin onto the hand. And after three weeks, you sort of divide it, and then the hand is covered wow. with a good quality skin. And and so the whole football team had this. You know, it yeah. wasn't just one person. Yeah. Oh, and, and the first eyebrow transplant, eyebrow reconstruction was made from the posterior scalp and, and things like that. So there was a lots of work uh, at the time uh, in that environment. And so there's some of the guinea pigs still came back for mm. reconstruction as I was there in 1985. Mm. And, uh, you know, that was uh, inspirational, how people can mm. live with such... Yeah. Yeah compromise I mean again it comes back to this oh my god got to be able to do better got to be able just owe it to these folks to do Mm. better Fiona you you spoke about being a female surgeon Mm. at that time can you tell us a little bit more about that oh well I was told that that, you know women didn't do it and Mm. I'd learned a really good lesson and I thought oh yeah I, I had come from an environment where like you say it wasn't whether you uh, you know, what your badge was, what colour you were, what race you were, what religion you were, what sex you were. It was, are you prepared to work out? Exactly. You know, yeah. can you? Yeah, so it's like I, I, I learned to walk on by. I refused to engage in that negative energy because there are certain people who, whose minds you will never change and, and you have to really be brutal and think, are they actually worth your oxygen? Mm. That sounds terrible, doesn't it? But I just think, you know, if somebody who doesn't know you mm. will make judgment and say things that could influence the rest of your life, mm. I would say to you, you do not have to listen. Mm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so I learned to walk on by. And my standard response was, I'm really good at embroidery. I made them a frock. Do you like it? And they think <laughs> I was nuts, right? They think, yeah. oh, that's just <laughs> stupid, that one. And I was like, whatever. And so, and so I went and found people that would support me. And in particular, there's a guy called Brian Mayhew, who was a plastic surgeon at St. Thomas's, who was doing lots of research on really new, innovative stuff, you know. And uh, and I I would, you know, help do the dissections in the morgue and do the anatomy. And I got to go into theatre and and he supported me all the way through, you know, through Great Ormond Street, through East Grinstead. And uh, he didn't care Uh that it was, I was a female from the wrong side of the traps. <laughs> You've seen her. She works harder than everyone exactly. else. You know? Exactly. <laughs> you know, so she can do the job, you know. Yeah. So, and so it was good to find your tribe. Mm. And there's no point wasting energy yeah. and time on people who are just, for whatever reason, come to the table with bigotry mm. and yeah. negativity. Mm. And the, you know, uh, negative comments without engagement in problem solving is just a waste of time. Yep. Mm. Criticism with engagement in problem solving is our life's blood. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know? I mean that's how we solve problems. Because I come, ideas are ten a penny. Yeah, mm-hmm. let's let's <laughs> let's work them out. Let's let's brainstorm. Let's throw, throw them around and you know, beat them up a bit. Let's work together to make sure that you know we don't have to spend our time reinventing the wheel, but we actually make the wheels of tomorrow. Mm-hmm. And you know, so that's the people that I went and sought out. Out. And uh, and now, yeah, when somebody wants to learn it, you know, and is hungry to learn and mm. it wants to push those barriers of knowledge, 
it is a pleasure yeah. to teach them. Oh, that's so good. Mm-hmm. No, absolutely amazing. So the journey then up to that point, um, when did you move to Western Australia? Oh, I came here uh, 30, uh, th- oh, th- I was going to say 38 years, not quite. It's uh, 1987. Right. Mm-hmm. I came here because I'm married a West Australian. And I married 38 years ago this week. And uh, it was an interesting journey. Uh, we met in March and we got married the first weekend we both had off roster. So it was a general surgeon and that was 13 weeks. Wow. And, so, <laughs> and that was 38 years ago. So wow. one of the better decisions, well, probably I'd have to say, uh, if, if he's listening, the best decision. <laughs> The best, the best decision, decision of, uh, <laughs> made with the inside of a gnat. <laughs> yeah, and he said, it's non-negotiable. You marry me, you live in Western in Perth, and that's not Scotland. And in, <laughs> and in fact, we didn't. We married in 85, and two years later, the prof, prof house of a gnat, uh, sort of contacted Tony, it's about time he came back. And it was true. It was non-negotiable. And that's how I came here in November 1987. And again, I think so lucky. Who wouldn't want to live here? Oh, lucky. I mean, you yeah, lucky. Yeah. WA lucky. Yeah. 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 Oh, no, I know. No, I mean, for, <laughs> no, no, it's no, like I being on holiday every day. Yeah, I go, to the, I go to the ocean every morning. It's like being on holiday. Yeah, I'm just like, I can't believe I live in this place. It is. But in all seriousness, you know, West Australia is so lucky that, that you made that best decision yes. of your life, um, <laughs> Professor Wood. So I'm going to just talk to you a little bit about um, – what do you know now that you wish you'd known at the beginning? I always think this is a really hard question. <laughs> it is. That's yeah, why we're and, throwing and, it at you. And, uh, <laughs> and, and people think, well, would you do something? And it implies that mm-hmm. you think you'd do something different. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so, and I feel that's a bit curlish because I've had a really, I've had a dream run. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's not always been a straight race. Always, there's yeah. always problems here and there. You've got to fix and sort out. Mm. But by and large, I've had a, a yeah, what's that book here, A Fortunate Life, mm-hmm. yeah. Mm-hmm. One of my favourites. And so, yeah, yeah mm-hmm. and I think yeah, I'm very lucky. So having prefaced that, I'd have liked to have done things quicker mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. I'm known to be impatient mm-hmm. and I know <laughs> the team know that I've, and especially now because my clock is ticking, I wish I, I could have really nailed significant funding earlier in the piece so that we could have built the team. Uh, no, the team's fantastic mm, though, you know I mean? Mm. But just the, the, the one thing that's kept me awake at night is how to pay for the researchers. Yeah, mm. yeah. And so if, if yeah. I had my time again, and what I really would want is a fairy. <laughs> you know, to say, ding, here's Research the, funding here's fairy. Here's your research money because I'm sure as hell don't know how else I'll get it. Yeah, no, and that's... <laughs> but, you know, so that, under, yeah. the funding mm. is the thing that, how can we do this better? Yeah. yeah. And I work in a very small niche area and it's quite rightly there's a lot of funding goes into cancer research, for example, mm-hmm. and uh, relative to burns research. Absolutely get that. But... But it's just, you know, hard, mm, yeah. uh, you know, to to be – you've got to be very resilient mm-hmm. to be in research and innovation mm. because, you know, you've put the idea together, you hone it, you put it forward, 
oh, I'll come back next time. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, no. You know, so you've got to build yeah. that resilience and and just kind of scrape and get a bit more preliminary data, get a bit more foot. You've got to be tenacious. Yeah, you do. And you've got to believe what, what you do. Yeah. You know, mm. so so would I have done anything different? No. But maybe go on a treasure hunt, <laughs> look for fairies <laughs> at the bottom of rainbows. <laughs> but I love it. I love it. What advice would you give to other innovators out there? Oh, advice again. This is another one, isn't it? Oh, God, here we go. Mum's giving me, <laughs> mom's giving me advice. Uh, and I think, you know, the, my advice is you don't have to listen to people who are negative. Mm-hmm. Criticism without engagement, you don't have to listen. Mm-hmm. You know, when people say bad things, mm-hmm. don't have to listen. That's the first thing. The other thing is say yes. Mm. Put yes before no. And I was last year, yeah, it was last year. God, it all blurs. I, <laughs> I, I went to each capital city and to the National Press Club and talking about for the uh, uh, the Australian Society of Medical Research mm. and uh, giving a talk in all these places. Try to say, well, let's actually think about saying yes. Let's say yes to each other. Let's say yes to collaboration. Let's let's say yes uh, when somebody asks for funding, say yes. Uh, <laughs> and so try and almost to think that our default should be yes and let's work out how to. Yeah. Mm. yeah. Because I'm not, it's not all Pollyanna. Get it. It's hard work. But if we always, if our default is to say no, then we won't make progress, mm-hmm. right? So make the default yes. And I think, to be perfectly honest, uh, in innovators and entrepreneurs are the kind of yes kind of people, yeah? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But but to spread that yes and never give up. Yeah. Be receptive to criticism with engagement in problem solving because your idea might actually not be the best thing since sliced bread, you know? And mm-hmm. if you're open to molding, changing Keep throwing it around a bit and building, seeing uh, you know what's gone before, making sure that when you you go forward, you go forward with something that you can really believe in. So prop, you know, so engaging there, but not giving up. Mm. Yeah, it's hard. It's a long road. So you have to have that passion and belief. So it's really worth interrogating that idea, roughing it up a bit, molding it, shaping it, so that when you go to the table, you know it inside out. And you believe in it. But with that caveat of always having your blinkers off mm. to see what you can do better. Beautiful. Um, Fiona, I think we should um, head into our rapid quick fire round. So we're going to shoot off a few questions to you. And uh, basically, just the first thing that comes to mind, really. So All now right. would you like to start? Let's, let's take <laughs> it away. Okay, Fiona, what's the single most important factor that makes a successful innovator or founder? Passion. Amazing. Um, if you were to wave your magic wand over the local startup <laughs> scene, what would you wish into being? <laughs> what would I wish? A fairy. A fairy. <laughs> fairy. <laughs> fairy. I was going to say a money fairy. A money sprinkle, fairy. sprinkle, sprinkle, <laughs> sprinkle. <laughs> yes, fair Does enough. it grow on trees? Well, like, why that, not? Absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. That's an invention. Exactly. <laughs> so who do you most, and you've spoken about a couple of people, um, who do you most admire in the local sort of innovation research um, scene, and it could be mm. a company or a person. You've already spoken about a couple. I think this is that, this is a hard one to answer. Yes, it is. And so, you know, I think whew, there's there's all these people mm. flicking in front of my mind because, yeah, I think we have a vibrant space here, and I'd have to say, you know, the, the, 
I'm thinking about Gemma. Mm. You know, Gemma, who, who could really, you know, with really exemplifies with support can go places. Yeah, young people with support can go places. Mm. Yeah, so I think there's a lot of people to support, and there's a lot of people, a lot of us that can do so. Mm. Yeah. So I reckon I can't name anyone other than the system. And that's weird for me because the system's always a bit of a behemoth and hard and to mold. But I reckon we've we've got something here that's special in mm. WA. And we hear that, punch above our weight and all that sort of stuff. But, well, actually, yeah. We do. Let's, let's start mm. believing it and yeah. helping. That hand of friendship, the hand of help. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Fiona, how can anyone listening help um, help you help? Uh, resell any anything that you're currently working on. Say yes. <laughs> Done. <Yeah. laughs> I think it's just being engaged, being interested. Mm. It's not just whether it's for me or resell or, or all the different programs, the Unscar and the Scar program, the neurological program or anything. It's just be interested in what's around you. Mm. There's so much opportunity to be involved, whether it be, you know, clean energy uh, or, you know, <laughs> the climate, yeah. uh, health, wellness, you know, wherever you look, mm. you know, electronic cars, you know, the whole, the world is interesting and it will be more interesting and more sustainable mm. with human energy put in the right place. So I just say yes and get involved in whatever. Fiona, what do you do to, inverted commas, get away from it all, to relax and refresh? Well, I've I've always been an exerciser, mm-hmm. but more recently I've started learning to to make jewellery in uh, a workshop uh, run by F- uh, uh, Phil and <laughs> in Aussie Park, mm-hmm. and hours go by without me knowing. Wow! <laughs> and it's just like whoa, uh, because it's hard. I can't do it as well as I'd like, and I've got to work at it. And practice mm. and, and learning how, you know, soldering and um, metalwork, shaping and all this. And it's really absorbing. So I think it's important to find something that's absorbing to, t- to actually refresh the mind. Mm. Yeah. yeah. Professor Fiona Wood, it has been an absolute privilege to interview you on the 100th Startup West podcast episode today. Um, yeah, it was an absolute privilege to be here. You yeah. had a tear in my eye when you spoke about your family and mm. your life-changing moment there. Um, so many lessons for us as humans, as founders, as parents. Um, uh, thank you so much for sharing your story. Well, thank you very much and thank you. And congratulations on 100. That is impressive. It is, right? Thank like, you. I think yeah. that's, um, yeah, yeah um, for us to be as lucky as we are to get you in to chat about um, everything that we've gone through today on our 100th episode. I think that's amazing. Also, not to take anything away from you, Fiona, I also would like to wish my co-host, Danelle, a happy birthday today. Oh, fantastic. Happy birthday. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) Thanks, both. Thanks to our sponsors, the Startup West podcast is produced by Startup News and is made possible by the support from Space Cubed, Curtin University, the City of Perth, RSM and TechOn. And a shout out, the Curtin Ignition Scholarships are now open. We recorded this podcast at Riff Podcast Studios in beautiful downtown Perth, Western Australia. Don't forget to subscribe to Startup West on your favourite podcast platform so our latest episodes appear in your feed. And if you like what you hear, please leave us a review. We'd love to hear from you. Thank you.